in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, if you haven't turned there yet, please turn there now. We're continuing on in our series called The Air We Breathe, and actually we're, we're approaching the end of our series. We've got two sermons left, and over the course of this uh, summer, we've been looking at some of the thought patterns that are subtle and yet dangerous, sinful, that permeate our culture, and, and if we're not careful, that can slip here into the church. And because they're subtle things, it's hard for us to identify them. It's, you can't see it, you can't smell it, but it's like carbon monoxide. If it creeps in, it's really dangerous. And today we're looking at this subtle thought pattern of individualism. And as I say that, I want to acknowledge that is an enormous topic. Uh, and not only is it an enormous topic, actually some of individualism is good. So if you're here and thinking, hey, I, some of that's good, agreed, some of individualism is good. But a lot of individualism is, is really unhealthy. In fact, as I went back through the series, I realized that probably 70% of what we've talked about already really is just an overflow of individualism. So like when we talked about self-reliance, this idea that I have to do everything in my own strength and that it's wrong if I need anyone, that flows out of individualism. Or last week when Zion talked about authority aversion and our distrust and disdain of all leadership and this idea that I don't need any, that's, that comes out of individualism too. Or when we talked about the idolization of our feelings we talked about how we, we have this mindset that whatever I feel is reality and, and the world needs to conform to my feelings. Well, that's, that's individualism too. And so this is a massive topic. I don't pretend that we're going to cover all of it this morning. Um, but what I want to zoom in on is, is really just the heart of it, which is this me focus that shapes so much of the world that you and I live in. It, there, I mean, think about this. One of our favorite pastimes is to go onto the internet and to, to put pictures of ourselves up for the world and then to see how many people liked them. Or, or to go onto the internet and to post all of our thoughts about things that, quite frankly, we don't really understand. But just because we feel like the world needs to hear it. it we, we've got our iPods and our iPhones we put in our iBuds and we hide from the world and escape into this me. I grew up, I had my MySpace, which was really just a, a digital shrine to myself, Right? What's in it for me? These are the questions that shape us. We've been taught, like one of the big cultural mottos is speak your truth. And it's like, yeah, because the world needs to hear my truth. Me, me, me is so much of the air that we breathe in our culture. And that inevitably creeps into the church with us. Which is a frightening thing because the church is supposed to be a little foretaste of heaven. Did you know that? That's, this is supposed to be like this spiritual outpost. God's got us in this world where we feel like we're foreigners, but he's got us living in the world on mission, sharing the hope that we have in Christ, but then we get to come back together, and this is supposed to be the place, like a little outpost, where we gather together and we breathe deep of, the, of this good air and we look to God's word. It's supposed to be a little foretaste of heaven. But if 200 people who are thinking, me, 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 gather together in the church, well, it starts to feel like a little foretaste of hell. And we don't want that as a church, do we? And so this morning, we're looking to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. And in this passage, we find this beautiful, other-centered approach that challenges that individualistic thinking and really helps us to see what this gathering of believers is supposed to be. So look with me now, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. He writes, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. 
and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, you likely noticed that this passage is an other-centered passage. What he's calling us to do in this text is he's calling us to lift our eyes up off of ourselves and to really look around at the tangible people in this room. You don't have to do it, but you look to your left, you look to your right, see the people around you and think about how you now can serve them. That's what he's calling us to do in this passage. Think about how you can build them up. Now, here's a question, because I'm always mindful when we talk about these things, it's easy to talk about it in theory, but it's hard to kind of put feet to it. So here's just a challenge before we go any further. I want you to think about your life and the people in your life, and I want you to think about, do you have anyone in your life who does this for you? Anyone in your life who spends their time thinking about how they can encourage you, how they can grow you, how they can move you forward? Anyone. If you can think of somebody, then you would agree with me right now, that is a tremendous gift. Like, what, what a privilege it is to have someone in your world who spends their time, which they could be using thinking about themselves and what they need, they're spending their time to think about what you need and how they can help you to grow. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? If you have somebody like that, praise God you've got somebody like that. But can I tell you, this passage is setting forward a bar that is, is so beautiful. Because according to this passage, each of us in this room should now be able to think of a hundred people like that. We should be surrounded by people like that. Because he says that's what we're actually called to do. That's who we're called to be. I want you to notice that this passage isn't for the spiritually elite. He doesn't say, and let those of you who are, who are really wise and mature in your faith consider how to stir up one another. And he says, let us, let you and me, the new believer, the old believer, the young believer, the, the person who's just, just getting started, let, let all of us, church, consider how we can build one another up. That's what he expects to see in, in the church. So as we rack our brains and we think of maybe that one person, maybe those two people, he's saying, you should be thinking of a hundred. That, that's God's design, is that we would be those people. And so if I could just dream with you before we go any further, I, I, what would it look like if we as a people just grew like 10% in this area? This kind of thing doesn't change overnight. But can you imagine if, if 10% of our congregation grabbed hold of this and said, you know what, I am going to give my time, give my energy to think about how to build the people up around me. If we had 10% of the people in this room actively building up the people around them all the time, that would be a game changer for us, church. That would absolutely change the impact that we have on this city. That would absolutely change the way that we live to the glory of God. You're at, all of a sudden, you're adding 10% of people, adding their eyes to see your life and the things that maybe you're missing, their encouragement on the days when you're weak. I would love to see that. And to that end, I ask the question from this text, how can we become a church that stirs up one another to love and good works? How can we do it? And I see four lessons for us in this passage. First, most importantly, if we want to become this kind of church, then we need to be transformed by the gospel. I want to make sure that you see this because everything else hinges on this. In order to see it, we need to zoom out from our passage today. First, I want to zoom all the way out, and I want to just consider the book of Hebrews as a whole. Of course, because when, when the first readers received this letter, they didn't just skip ahead and read these two verses and then close it. They read the whole letter, right? So he's assuming that we've got that whole foundation. The book of Hebrews, you've probably heard it said, can be summarized with one phrase. 
Anybody know the phrase? Jesus is, boom, you got it. That was my wife. Jesus is, I just, this is what we talk about at dinner, I guess. Um, Jesus is better. That's the whole book summed up in a phrase. He is walking through this, the Mosaic Covenant, and he's walking through the life that they had, and he's showing them Jesus is better than everything that we once had. He is a better mediator than Moses. Jesus is ever interceding for us at the Father's right hand, speaking on our behalf to God and, and from God to us. Jesus is a better mediator than Moses. He's the better high priest than Aaron or any of the other high priests after Aaron. Jesus, is, he perfectly represents us before God. More than that, Jesus is the better sacrifice than any of the sacrifices that were ever made. Just think about it, all the, the, the cows and the goats and the, and the sheep and all these animals that died for our sin. How could they atone for our sin? But he says, look at Jesus. He is God, he is man. And he died for our sin. He's the perfect sacrifice, better than anything we've missed. He says, Jesus is the better temple. What, did, what is the temple? It's the place where we go to meet with God. And he writes to them and he says, well, guess what? Jesus is now the place where we go to meet with God. And he's with us everywhere. And he says, Jesus, is, he offers us a better rest than the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day when we could enter into the rest of God. Jesus gives us that rest always and ever. It, the, the entire book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is better than the Mosaic Covenant. It has been fulfilled in Christ, and now because we are in Christ, what we have is so much better. That's the message of the book. Well, then now we, we zoom in on our paragraph for this morning. Because our text, verses 24 to 25, it's really point three in a sermon that he's making in this paragraph. And anytime you stump, you're jumping in on point three, you really need to know what came before it. So I want to show you. He, he gives three responses to this gospel. If you look at verse 19, he, he kind of summarizes this gospel that he's been explaining in the, in the book. And he leads us into three implications. So let's see. He says, therefore, this is verse 19, look with me. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Pause there. So he's summarizing this whole book. He's like, since Jesus died for our sins. Since Jesus went to that cross and paid the debt that we owed. And now he's opened a way for us to be with God. He says three responses. The first one is in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's the first response. And listen, this isn't what we're going to be talking about today, but maybe for some of you, this is what you need to hear. So I, we've, got a, we've got a text for this morning, but maybe you just need to hear this. He points to the cross and he says, do you understand what Jesus has done for us? If you do, here's your first response. Draw near to God. Jesus died for your sin. So you're here and you're feeling all guilty and you're feeling all far from God and you're thinking, oh, how could God love me? But he's saying, if you've put your trust in Jesus, if, if you believe that Jesus died for your sin, recognize right now that all of your sin, all that filth that should keep you separated from God, it's been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. He says, so, therefore, draw near to God. Why would you waste another second of your life staying far from God and saying, oh, I don't know, he's, he's so holy and who am I? He's, come right up to the altar, like come close. Because Jesus took all that sin and he paid for it. Let us draw near. That's the first response. And then he comes into the second response in verse 23. Look there with me. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope 
without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So here's the second response. He says, you, you need to hold tight to this truth. He says, you wrap your heart, you wrap your mind around this gospel truth, and you don't let go. Because listen, there's going to be a lot of voices out there and in here that tell you that this is too good to be true. Just, the world's going to look at you and say, are you a fool? You actually believe this? You believe there's a God and you believe the, of this sin thing and that God sent his, so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting life? You believe that? And he's saying, yes, you do. You hold on to that. And the devil's going to whisper in your ear and say, God could never love you. Do you know how much rotten stuff you've done? Do you know how messed up your life is? Do you know what a sinner, what, how much you've hurt other people? God could never forgive you. He says, no, you just, you shut that down. You hold fast to this truth. Jesus died for my sin. I can come before God. He says, you hold fast to that. Hold, don't let it go. Wrap your heart around it. Wrap your mind around it. And those are the first two responses. Draw near, hold fast. But then he comes to this third response. And as I was reflecting on the passage this week, I thought, this one really is curious. Third response. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if we're going to understand our passage for today, we need to recognize what it is. It's response number three. A response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first two responses made a lot of sense. So he, he essentially, he pointed to the cross, and he's like, seeing that, draw near to God. And we say, yeah, amen, hallelujah, I get, to, I get to be near God. And then he says, and seeing that, hold on to this gospel truth. And we're like, amen, I'm never going to let it go. God loves me in Christ. It's, it's beautiful. And then he says, and the third response is, look around you and help these people. And we're like, uh, well, that... The amen kind of trails off a little bit because that doesn't feel as intuitive. The first two were about me, me, me. That's my language. But this third one says, and seeing that, you need to be looking at the people around you. And that part feels like a less natural response to the gospel. And yet, according to the author of the Hebrews, it's just as natural as those first two responses. See, we don't intuitively look at the cross and come away thinking about how we should build up the family of God. That's not where our brains immediately go. And yet, according to the author of the Hebrews, we should think that. When he looks at the cross, he sees our love for one another, our building up of the people of God as just as natural a response as drawing near and holding fast. Why is that? What does he see when he looks to the cross? He sees the other-centered emphasis of the gospel. So he sees forgiveness of sins as he should, and he sees this glorious gospel as he should, but he also sees this other-centered emphasis. He sees the God who condescended down. We sang a line today, what was it? Um, He who was before there was time, left his throne to wake as a child. He became like the least of us. He's seeing that when he looks at the cross. Our great God condescending down below the angels to be with us, to suffer with us, so that he could lift us up with him to heavenly places? That's beautiful. That's incredible. The, the perfect, sinless, spotless one taking my sin and your sin and the sins of all his people onto himself and paying for it for us? That's incredible. And when he sees that, he says, of course then, as a response to that, 
I should be looking around me at people like you, and I should be asking myself, how now can I build them up? How can I resemble the love that I've received by encouraging them to grow in their walk? Of course, he says, we should be gripped by the reality that life is actually about more than me. This is about more than just the forgiveness of my sins. Of course, we should be a people who serve and love and minister to all those people around us. Of course. He sees that when he looks to the cross. It's so intuitive to him. And I wonder, is it, is it intuitive to us? Or is it possible that this individualism, this air that we breathe in our culture, keeps us from seeing the other aspect of the gospel and keeps us settling for, for the, the glorious part that has to do with me? And listen, that part is beautiful. But we need to branch out and to see that this gospel is actually good news for the people around us too. And that rightly seeing this gospel should change the way that I love people like you. And the way that you love people like the person sitting next to you. It's important that we see that. Because everything everything else we're going to say this morning, everything that we're going to pull out of this passage, is, is contingent upon us understanding this. That this is an overflow of that love. That if, if we're not understanding the gospel, that everything that follows here, we're not going to be able to do it. Because the call isn't to, you know, feel guilty and try to muster up the strength to do better. The call is to look to Christ, to look at what he's done, and now respond accordingly. So let's see that before we go any further. Do you see it? All right. That's the first lesson. Second, if we want to be a church that stirs up one another to love and good works then we need to be more intentional. We see this in verse 24. He says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Before we go further, I want to just note how beautiful it is, that that package, love and good works. If he took love out of that, then it, it could be a bit of a tricky verse. Let us consider how to stir up one another to good works. The world's got a lot of solutions to stir people up to good works. Right, well, okay, well, that's good. Let's just get a punishment system. Um, if, if somebody misses a couple of weeks, we'll get a dunce cap. You wear a dunce cap for your tardiness, um, right? If, we'll, we'll give you a smack on the wrist for every time you, you say a foul word. You know, we've got lots of ways to stir up people to good works. I can, I can modify your behavior if I want to. I've got some tools. But that's not what he's after. Because good works without love are not the works that God's after. Let us stir up one another to love and good works. Keith and I did not coordinate this, but Keith, anybody recognize the passage he was praying from today? This beautiful passage about love. Anybody know where that's from? It was 1 Corinthians 13 that he was, he was praying from. 1 Corinthians 13, if you remember, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is talking about the spiritual gifts in the church. All these different things that, we, that God's entrusted to us, that we do for him, that we use to serve one another, are good works. But in 13... The Apostle Paul reminds us, all of those other gifts, all those other things that you do, if those are separated from love, they're like a clanging gong to God. He's not pleased with them. He's not pleased with all of your prophecy. He's not pleased with your great sermon. He's not pleased with your your serving, your fellowship, all, all that stuff. He's not pleased with it if it is not filled with love. So that's what he's after here. He's not just after behavior modification. He's after a gospel transformation fueled by love overflowing to other people, okay? That's what we're looking for here. But I want to focus in on this word, let us consider. Let us consider. He's calling us here to 
to spend time giving careful thought to how we can do this. One commentator notes, loving one another well does not just happen. It needs to be worked at, even provoked, in the same way as good works. He's saying, you need to, well, let me ask you a new question instead. When is the last time that you actually set apart time and you thought about how you could build somebody up in their walk with the Lord? When's the last time that you really just sat down and you thought, okay, so-and-so is really, they're struggling. What could I do? What could I tangibly do to help them? To help them to grow in their walk with the Lord? What we see in this passage is that that's the kind of thing that we ought to be doing. Now, the, individual in, the individualism in us is going to bristle at this thought experiment because there's another voice in my head that's saying, mind your own business. Honestly, quit being such a meddler. Like, you've got enough problems on your own. You don't need to be jumping into other people's problems, and they don't want you in their problems anyways. Just live and let live. You do you enough. That's the, that's the narrative, right? The individualism. But this passage is saying, no, no, no. Let us consider. Let us, let's think about this. And I love what he goes on to say. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The expression of stirring up, the Greek word there, it's actually a lot harder than it sounds in this translation. So one commentator notes, the word rendered spur or stir up, it's actually a noun, paroxysmos, which usually has a meaning like irritation or exasperation. It is most unusual to have it used in a good sense. And the choice of the unusual word makes this exhortation more striking. He's saying, when you look at this in the Greek, you know what, it actually reads like, let us consider how to irritate one another. Let us consider how to exasperate, how to agitate one another to love and good works. It's got a different ring to it, doesn't it? It's supposed to have a ring to it. He's saying, let us consider how to be the, the rock in the shoe of the person who is walking off the path that leads to life. And, and we bristle at that, and we're like, well, I don't want to, it doesn't feel right that we should be irritating, or we should be exasperating, or agitating. It doesn't feel right that we should be so forceful. Because sometimes I think we forget what's at stake. You know, I, um, last night as I was going over this, I was trying to think of an analogy, an illustration, and one came to me that unfortunately, um, so I asked Matt Scarlett if I could share this example. Because in most of my stories with Matt, he comes out looking great and I look like the bad guy. But in this one, he doesn't look super great. But he said it's okay. So be at ease. He okayed this at green light. But we were roommates in Bible college for a year, and we had this one class, uh, spiritual formations. It was just like the easiest class. You just, you really just need to show up. In fact, on this particular day, all we had to do was show up to the class, and you get 10% of your mark. Or, alternatively, skip the class and lose 10% of your grade for the semester. And I'm getting up to go, and Matt's sleeping. And I'm like, hey, Matt, like, we got to go. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to do it. I'm going to, and he's got, he had an excuse. Oh, I'm going I'm to sleep in so that I could prepare for the class that I got later in this afternoon. And I was like, Matt, what are you, like, no, like, you, you've got to get up. Because he and I both know he's going to sleep for 10 more minutes, and then he's going to get up and just practice base all day. Like, it's like, it's not worth it, Matt. You're going to lose 10% of your grade? Like, you paid for this course. Just come. And thankfully, he came. And I didn't feel like a bad friend, though I was a bad friend many times in school. I wasn't a bad friend in that moment, even though I annoyed him and irritated him and got him out of the bed. I was a good friend because 10% of his grade was at stake. Like, what, are you going to walk away and just leave him there? But here in this passage, I mean, what, 
this is about far more than 10% of the grade. He's, he's looking at this church and he's saying, you ought to be the kind of people who are thinking intentionally about how you can, how you can go after those people who are wandering off of the path that leads to life. Irritate them. <laughs> Exasperate them in. Like, be the rock in their shoe. Pull them back in. Think for a moment about the people in your life. Is there anyone in your life, any believer in your life, that is just struggling in their walk, and you know about it? Maybe, maybe they're struggling. Maybe they've, they've been saying, like, time after time, I want to read my Bible, but it's just so hard. I just can't seem to do it. And you know about this. How could, you, how could you be that rock in the shoe? How could you help them in that? Maybe it's like, all right, well, I'm going to text you every morning. We're going to read this. Let's, let's pick a time. We're going to read. I'm going to text you. We can do this. Or maybe it's the prayer, and they're like, I just, I'm struggling. I don't want to do this thing. Maybe you could say, hey, I'm taking you to prayer group with me. We're going. Or maybe they're, they're missing church. They're just not coming. There's always some reason why they don't make it. You could just, hey, tell you what. I'm going to be in your driveway at 940. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going to toot the horn at 945, and I'll toot it a couple times until you get down here. Like, we're going. Who are those people in your life that you could stir up to love and good works? You should think about it. And don't let the thinking stop right now. I'm just throwing this out there. I don't want to do your homework for you. We should, each of us, go home and really think about it. Who are the people that God's put in my life that I could build up, that I could stir up, where I could be that, that tool that's used by God to help them to get on the path? Let us consider, in view of the cross, in view of the God who entered into our mess so as to bring us home, let each of us consider how we might stir up those who are struggling in our lives. And if we're going to become a church that stirs up one another to love and good works, we need to be more intentional. That's the second lesson. Next, third. If we want to become a church like this, then we need to be together. This is the obvious statement in verse 25. I'm going to go back to verse 24. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And he puts this little caveat, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Which, pause, is a reminder that even in the first century, this was a challenge. Even in the first century, he'd look at the gathering and say, there's a lot of people who just, they just don't show up. But if we're going to build each other up, if you want to have a positive effect on the people around you, you need to be here. Like if you want to be able to be that voice that encourages somebody, you need to know them. You need to be doing life with them. You need to be together. Now, what does it mean to meet together? Right? Is, that, is he just referring to these corporate gatherings? I like what one commentator notes here. He says, It may purposefully be left ambiguous so as to include other gatherings of a more informal kind. But the Greek word, episynagoge, suggests some official assembly. So what he's saying is it's, it's vague enough that I think you can capture this in a lot of different ways, but it, certainly he was expecting us to be thinking most predominantly about the, the corporate gathering, like the time when the people of God come together to worship. There's something special that happens in these gatherings. Now, is it sweet when we come together for a picnic? You bet it is. You know, we're going to essentially have one of those after the service. That's a really sweet time. But there's something different when we lift our voices together in praise and we open God's word and we study together and we bear one another's burdens and pray together and we come to the Lord's Supper and we break the bread and drink the cup together and we celebrate baptism together. There's something special about that that can't be replicated. He's telling us, don't neglect this. 
You'll never become a church that stirs one another up to love and good works if you neglect this. Now, obviously there are going to be legitimate reasons why people may not be able to gather on any given week. People get sick. Kids get sick. You go away on vacation. Uh, I'm going away on vacation next Sunday, and I'm going to be worshiping at a different gathering. So I'm, I'm not suggesting if you've ever gone on vacation that you've broken this command. No, I, there are legitimate reasons why we're going to be away. Sometimes the world gets shut down in quarantine. These things happen sometimes. But what I, what I want to avoid this morning is I want to avoid imposing some kind of legalistic number, you know, the number of acceptable absences in the church. And if you, as long as you're within this number, you're good. And, but if you step outside of this number, well, now you're neglecting the gathering. I don't want to do that, even though there's always that temptation to kind of build that fence. The problem with a fence is if somebody wants to get outside the fence, they're going to climb the fence. Right? So that's the beautiful thing of this new covenant is that rather than putting this fence, God is giving us a new heart. A new heart that wants new things. He's filling us with his spirit. And so what we're after here is not some kind of fence that says, okay, you're allowed to skip church this many times, but no more. What he's after is a change in our thinking. That we would value this gathering so much that we wouldn't want to miss it unless we really have to. That we would see that this gathering really matters. Can I tell you something? It really does. And not just the gathering itself, but your presence in the gathering really matters more than you realize. Sometimes, I mean, it's happened on numerous occasions when somebody will come and I'll, I'll meet a new person. And as I meet this new person, they're talking and they're like, oh, this is great. It's my first time coming to church. This is really something. And then they tell me what they do. And I'm like, oh, that's brilliant. Actually, there's somebody here and they do the same job. Let me just introduce you to the, forget it. Or, or their, their personality. I'm really passionate about adoption. I'm like, oh, that's great. Let me introduce you to, like so many times I just think, man, it would be such a blessing if I could connect this person with that person because your presence, it really does matter. God has wired you uniquely, specifically, wonderfully. You're a member of this body of Christ and you are irreplaceable, right? The way that, the way that God has wired you, it's irreplaceable and it really blesses us when you're here and you're a part of this family. I, I've heard this excuse so many times and, and if you're here and you've made this excuse Bless you. It's so many people have. It's fine. I'm not poking at anybody. I'm just, this is our individualistic culture. I have to say it. So many times people will say things like, I know I haven't been at church, but just, I want you to know, I've been listening to great podcasts. So I'm, I've been spiritually fed. I'm feeling really good. I feel actually better than I was feeling before. I'm receiving everything I need. And, and again, that's that overflow of the individualistic culture because churches, if it's just about what we receive, then man, there are easier and better ways to receive Lots of great stuff, right? Let's all go for a walk, and I'm going to listen to John Piper, and it would be so nice for me. But it's not just about what we receive. It's about what we bring. And you need to understand that what you bring is really special. It's important. Your presence matters. The relationships that you have matter. It could be that that person that, that really resonates with you, that friendship that you've really cultivated, one Sunday they're pricked, they're, God's really working in their heart, and they want to unpack that with somebody, and they're looking for you. Be there for them. Your encouragement matters. The example that you set and the love that you model and the worship that you exude, all of that matters. And we as a people are healthier and we're stronger and we're better able to stir up one another to love and good works when you're here. And I would argue that in our North American culture, one of the reasons why our churches are so unhealthy is because we don't necessarily believe this anymore. 
because we do have just a, a plethora of tools. We do have the most amazing podcasts. You can listen to the best sermons and the best worship team. And so we don't prioritize the gathering the way that we once did. But I, I tell you, we are so much healthier when, when we're here. We're so much healthier when we're doing life together. And on the flip side, when you're not here, we feel it. And I don't want to, I don't want to guilt you, I don't want to shame you, but some of you just need to hear that. It's not like, don't assume that we don't feel it when you're not here. We do. We miss you, we love you, we're not the same without you. So if I could just challenge you, prayerfully consider what this passage is teaching us here. Just sit in it. Is it possible that you have not been thinking about the effect that your absence has on the people of God when you're not here? Is it possible that you're underselling just how much you matter to what God is doing in this congregation? Is it possible that, that you've been neglecting to meet together? That if you were in this church in Hebrews, when he wrote this command, he was talking about the people like you who were neglecting the gathering. Now remember, now let's tie this all back. The, the response to this now is not to walk away with shame and say, oh great, I need to do better, you know, because love is the only thing that changes anything, right? And it's our understanding of the gospel is the only thing that changes anything. So don't walk away feeling shame and, and guilt. Walk away considering the cross and thinking about how maybe, just maybe, my thinking on this issue needs to change. That's the third thing. If we want to become a church that stirs up one another to love and good works, we, we need to be together. Fourth and finally, if we want to become a church that stirs up one another to love and good works then we need to take seriously the coming judgment. We see this in verse 25. He writes, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is the day? Well, that's the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, you can see that theme developing, it, and it, it develops in these various judgments that the, that the people of God experience. But then in the New Testament, it really comes refined to this culminating day of the Lord. It is the day of judgment when everyone who has ever lived will stand before God and will give an account. That is the day of the Lord. And he tells us that day is coming. And the way that we worship together and the way that we build one another up ought to be shaped by that reality. If we forget that that day is coming, if we forget that that judgment is coming, we're going to slip into apathy and carelessness and we're going to just sleepwalk our way through life. But he says we can't live that way because that day is coming. It's easy living as we do. And I, I'm saying this to myself. I feel this. It's easy living as we do in the lap of luxury, surrounded by all the toys and hobbies and pleasures and distractions that the world has to offer, to forget that this world is passing away. And that it's only what we do for Christ that will last. That's it. When we stand before him, that is, that is it. He will not care about the, the number of toys we've accumulated. What will matter in that day is what we've done for Christ. It's easy for us to make peace with sin. It's easy for us to buy the lie that I could, actually, I could have the best that the world has to offer and I can have what Jesus has to offer. I could probably, I could probably have both of these things and hold on to I want it all. But I want you to look at what he goes on to say in this passage. So see this with me. I know we're ending on a heavy note, but he ends on a heavy note. So I'm going to read from verse 25, but but I'm going to keep reading. Okay? So he says, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen to what he says. For, so he's tying it back, because 
if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. See that? So he's ending on a heavy note. I, that, we're just following the text. And what he's doing here is he's, he's got this beautiful, he points him to Jesus and he says, live in light of this glorious gospel truth. Because of this truth, dr- let's, we gotta press in and we gotta hold fast and we gotta build each other up. And you're like, yeah, that's beautiful. And then he reminds us, because, because the judgment is coming. And because not everybody who thinks that they're in will discover on that judgment day that they were in fact in. Jesus said, on that day, many of you will come and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And he'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. So this is the clear teaching of the New Testament, that there are going to be people in the church who think that they're walking with Jesus, but in reality, they've fallen in love with the world. And they've fallen in love with their sin. And nobody loved them enough to tell them that. And so they missed out on the prize altogether. That's what he's saying here. You say, well, what do we do then? That's, that's horrifying. That's, that's a terrifying reality that, we, that I could be so blind to my sin that I could be, I mean, what a waste of my Sunday mornings if I'm not even going to go to heaven. What's the point of all of this? He's saying, listen, here's the solution. Here's what God has given us to keep us on the narrow way. The solution is sitting next to you and behind you and in front of you. It's like, how do we live out this life? How do we, how do we identify the blind spots? How do we What's the alarm that we can install so that when we're going off the lane, something like beep, 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 and brings us back? Anybody have one of those? My car's too old, but I've, I've driven in one before, and it's always telling me, like, get back in the lane. I wish we had that in the spiritual life. And he says, here, you do. And, and it's your brothers and your sisters. It's those people that you're doing life with week after week after week after week. Those are the people, when you're going off the lane, those are the people who know you well enough and love you enough to tell you. You need those people in your life. Those people who can, who can encourage you and say, I haven't, you're not growing. Like you can, what's happened in your life? That can encourage you when your marriage is going off the rails. That can encourage you when your faith is, is this small. That can encourage you when you disappear from the gathering and don't show up for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks in a row. One pastor explains, we cannot endure in isolation. We need each other. And that's where this individualism, this mindset in our culture falls short. We need each other. You weren't designed, just we saw this a few weeks ago, right? When we talked about self-reliance. We're all of us strategically deficient. None of us was built to do this on our own. We need the body of Christ. We need our brothers and sisters. We need to be together. We need to encourage one another. We need to be thoughtful about how we can build each other up. And if I could just say, this isn't simply a call to show up. That would be behavior modification. This isn't simply, hey, fix your attendance patterns. No. This is a call to adopt a whole new way of thinking about what it means to come together as a church. This is a call to leave behind the familiar mantra of what's in it for me and to ask instead, what can I do for my brothers and sisters in their walk with Jesus? I'll just come out and say it. I need this. I need help. I hope you know that. As the guy up here, my heart grows cold. My faith can feel small. I can struggle in my sin. I have blind spots. I desperately need friends in my life like this. I'm thankful to God that I have many of them. But I'll tell you, I want 
many more. I, I pray that this would just be a church full of people who love me enough to say, Pastor, you, I'm seeing something in you and we need to talk about it. I need this in my life and you need this too. You need it. And your kids need this. Your kids need people in their life who see them every week after week after week and who know them and who love them and who can speak into their lives. Your neighbors need this. So by the grace of God, let's put the individualism behind us and let's become a church that stirs up one another to love and good works. I want to be a church like this. By God's grace, let's press in. To that end, let's ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we love you. I thank you for all of the men and women who are gathered here today. I thank you for the boys and girls who are right now growing in their friendships and learning more about you and growing in their walk with you. God, I thank you for the gift of worshiping together and praying together and learning together. Lord, for the gift of partaking of communion together in just a moment. God, of sharing, of sharing a meal together in, in a little longer. Lord, all of these things are gifts from you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that they're, they're not just gifts that we can take or leave. Lord, they're gifts that are vital to our life. They're gifts that are vital to our walk with you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the ways we contribute. Lord, I, today I want to pray for those people who maybe, maybe they look at their lives and they wonder, am I contributing anything at all? And Lord, maybe they've never found that area where they could, could serve, you know, in the way that we talk about serving. And, and they wonder if, if they're just taking up a seat. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see just how valuable they are to you and how valuable they are to us. Lord, help them to see how their relationships, their presence, Lord, how it, it changes people and encourages people. Lord, I pray that we would better celebrate that as a church. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the people around us who are in need. Lord, the reality is every single person in this room is in need in one way or another. Lord, I pray that we would be thoughtful and intentional to build each other up. God, I pray that we wouldn't brush this off or leave this for others, but Lord, that we would take seriously this is, this is discipleship. Lord, so many times we wonder, what does it look like to go and make disciples? It looks like this. It looks like looking at the person next to you and thinking about how to, how to build them up in their walk. That's it. So God, would you fill us with your spirit? Help us to look with love. Lord, help us to be fueled by grace. Uh, Lord, I pray if there's anybody here who's feeling like they just got a beat down and they're feeling guilty or, or shame or they're feeling even like I'm, like I'm mad at them, Lord, I pray that you would just shut all that down and instead, Lord, just apply the transforming power of the gospel. Lord, if there's something that needs to be corrected, let it be corrected in love, Lord. Let it be corrected, corrected not out of, that, out of that shame, but, Lord, out of a love for Christ. And, Lord, I pray for all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?